Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. As always, right here in Lawfather headquarters, we are in Lawfather studios. All right, somber day today, uh, as it is 9-11, September 11th of 2023. And what we're going to do today is we're going to dive in a little bit as to what's going on with 9-11 and the kind of overall aspect to it, okay? Those of you who, well, I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about, but as Jason and I were kind of talking, it's been 22 years, right? It was 9-11, 2001. Um, some of us were in college at that time. Some of you listening probably weren't even born at that time. Uh, one of the, the interesting facts that I was reading about today is that there's uh, one, one of the recent recruit classes for the Marines over in Paris Island, or up in Paris Island from Florida, uh, which I believe it's in South Carolina, is that this re- they, they do history as part of the boot camp. And obviously 9-11 is history, right? That's part of U.S. history and U.S. military history because it led to a really protracted war in the Middle East. And the really interesting thing that I found out was that all of the recruits that were in this recruiting class for the Marines, not one of them was born when 9-11 happened. All right, so think about that. Not one of those Marine recruits were born when it happened. As a matter of fact, the, the drill sergeant there for that particular class was eight years old. All right, so really kind of not, not much of a memory of the events that happened, right? Not, not like a lot of us who probably remember where we were at the time that it happened. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up uh, in South Jersey, so you know, just hour and a half to our ride north to get to North Jersey and New York. So um, I had just left. I would have just gotten to you know within the past within the week or two prior to Western Carolina University, where I was in a class. I. I know it was an English class. I can't remember what class it was, but I was in a class. Um, so kind of re- really vividly remember that when we first started learning about it. And, and I think being in North Carolina, so removed from it, you know, we didn't really, it, it wasn't as pressing of an event at the moment, right? Not Not looking at it from as we learned about things as the day transpired. I mean, in that moment in time, right? Because no one knew what was going on, right? No one, no one anywhere, right? I I can't imagine there's any American out there, right? Who could look at it and go, I knew from the moment that the first tower was hit that it was a terrorist attack. I, I would be hard pressed to think that there's anybody out there who could honestly say that they knew that at that moment, right? It was more of a, wow, especially when when you look at it and, and you track it as it was happening live, right? As it's, okay, a plane has just hit the World Trade Center. Oh my God, okay, well, that's terrible, right? How could, how could there be such pilot error, right, that a pilot crashes into the World Trade Center, right? And... Boom, the second one happens and you go, that's kind of odd, right? How, how do you have two planes that you have such pilot error that they hit a building in New York City, right? So 
then starts coming to light and coming to light and coming to light a little bit more, right? So those of you who weren't around, it, it was just really kind of surreal thing. I remember calling my parents who still lived in New Jersey at the time. My brother and sister were 10 years younger than me, were in elementary school at the time because I was 18, they were eight, right? And I remember my parents telling me, yeah, they had, their school was in lockdown. They were not allowed to leave the school because no one really knew what was going on, right? So maybe it's really easy to look at looking back at it and go, yeah, it's very clear, but in the moment, at that time, as it was happening, you really didn't have much of an idea, okay? So what we're gonna talk about today is I wanna hit some facts on it and kind of some fast facts, if you will, um, on the attacks themselves and on some of the, the timelines and events. And then we're gonna bring the legal side all the way back into it because, hey, that's what we do here, right? I do a legal show where it's a legal podcast. So let's talk about some legal aspects, right? Some things that you probably either don't know or don't remember because it's been, what would we say, 22 years? 23, 20, yeah, 20, 22 years. Sorry, math. Law school math, okay? 2001, carry the one. We get to 22 years. Anyway, all right. So there were 2,700, almost 2,800 people that were killed uh, as a result of the attacks, okay? Uh, of those from the initial attacks, if we look at the first responders, for so if we look at just the, the Twin Towers portion of the attacks, 343 were New York City firefighters, 23 were New York City police officers, 37 were officers at the Port Authority, uh, and I believe I read somewhere earlier that I think there were eight uh, EMS personnel that were killed in the towers. Now, keep in mind, we're talking, these numbers are kind of more, more purely at that moment in time, right? Versus now there's, uh, I don't wanna call it a disease, but there's, um, there's respiratory issues that have resulted in uh, more deaths that are attributed to the 9-11 attacks but not directly right um, and and as we see as we'll see how does that affect the legal side of the case okay uh, in Pennsylvania there were 40 passengers and crew members that were killed so uh, remember that was the plane that seemingly right look no one was there and I think they may have some black box data that they were able to piece together how it happened but essentially the the people on the plane, took overtook the hijackers, overtook the plane. So overtook the hijackers who overtook the plane to then retake control of the plane to then crash the plane uh, in a field in Pennsylvania. So in that sense, the only casualties in that crash were the, uh, the people on the plane. And then 184 people were killed at the Pentagon. All right, so there was two, two planes into the World Trade Centers Dual, the dual buildings. If you guys, if you ever watch Friends, you'll see every once in a while. I don't watch a lot of Friends, but I've seen it enough that um, between Friends and Seinfeld, both of them take place in New York City. So if you happen to catch an old episode, sometimes you'll see, because they're pretty iconic buildings. They were, they only were called the Twin Towers because they literally looked like twins. Um, so, um, and it wasn't, it actually wasn't the first attack on those towers. There was a bombing, I believe in the 90s, uh, at the World Trade Center. So um, 
but I, I think it was in the parking garage. I believe they have a parking garage that was that was kind of the first few levels of it, um, and there was there was a bomb that or bombing that had taken place there. So that gives you an idea of the scope of the amount of people killed as a result of this one single attack. Now let's look at the timeline just a little bit, right? As you as I kind of described. Just to kind of piece out the times, so at 8.46 a.m., the first flight hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center. At 9.03 a.m., the second strike at the World Trade Center happened. So that was a, that's what I meant. Like, it was, everything was really compact, and everything happened really very quickly, right? That, that's what's 14, 17 minutes in time for something like that, right? And you figure the first couple minutes, people are trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Um, and at that point, the towers were still up, right? So it, what's kind of amazing is these planes hit these towers. And initially, for a period of time, right, almost a little over an hour, these towers are standing. Like, they're still up there. They got hit by big, big planes, and they're still standing. Uh, we have at 9.07, the Pentagon building was struck. At 9.59 a.m., the first tower collapses. 10.03 a.m., the flight that crashed into the field, that crashes into the field. And at 10.28, the north tower of the World Trade Center collapses. Okay, so that's kind of a, a quick little timeline. And as you can see, started at, at 8.46 a.m. and kind of everything was done by 10.28. So some just large-scale major magnitude done in under two hours. Okay, now obviously there's a lot more going on right after that, right? There was search and rescue. There was just, there was everything. Um, I know there's a lot of documentaries on it and a lot of interesting uh, things. I've seen a lot of interesting videos on it. Um, there's a, some some street level video if, and I don't, I don't remember where I saw it. it. I don't, it wasn't a social media video, I don't believe. I believe it was some sort of documentary, but it's, it's street level from the command point of view. It's, it's really, really kind of amazing. Um, the things that were done and the recognition of what needed to be done. Uh, and I don't mean needed to be done from a military perspective. I mean needed to be done from a first responder perspective right then and there. So um, that is, that's kind of the rundown of, of the initial thing, right, of, of how that all worked. Now, there was, there was something. There was something that was going to happen. And I was going to say it, but I don't remember what it was. So we're going to we're going to move on to the next thing. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, I actually I know what it was. I had read that recently. Um, I believe I read this today, right? That they had just identified two more victims by DNA. So think about that. Twenty-two years later, and they're still identifying some of the victims. Um, granted, I, I would assume that by and large, even if victims, some of the victims weren't fully identified officially that the families knew, right? That it was not a surprise, like, oh my God, I didn't know. No, I, I have a feeling that that most of the people knew, all right? So let's, let's change gears a little bit because, as I said, this is a legal show, and because it is a legal show, let's talk about the law and how it works with this, okay? So as a result of these attacks in 9-11, George Bush. So George Bush too. Uh, George W. Bush. George W. Bush was the president of the United States. So the son of the first George Bush. 
okay, was president of the United States at the time of the attacks. And what he did was he created a court, right? So this is kind of cool from a legal perspective. Not that any of this is cool because of what happened, right? So let's let's get that straight. But from the very nerdy legal perspective, okay, kind of cool that he created an entire court just for this purpose, just to prosecute the crimes and the conspiracy that resulted from these attacks, okay? Uh, so let's just look at the, the setup of this, okay? Because it is in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, right? So uh, it's kind of interesting that we have a base still in Cuba, and we don't really get along with the Cubans, it turns out. Well, take that back. It's not that we don't get along with the Cubans. Our government does not get along with the Cuban government. So let's clarify that, right? Um, I know lots of Cubans. I live in Tampa. I know lots of Cubans. They're all great people. Even the people that live in Cuba. From what I understand, great. I've never been to Cuba, right? Um, because, you know, we generally have these travel restrictions with going to Cuba. Um, because our governments don't like each other. It has to do Cold War, Russia, that whole thing. Um, Bay of Pigs invasion. There's a lot that's going on with Cuba. Um, Read up on the history books. Bay of Pigs Invasion is pretty interesting. Pretty interesting read up on that. So maybe take a look sometime. But we digress from Guantanamo Bay. What was built in Guantanamo Bay is Guantanamo's expeditionary, expeditionary, expeditionary. There we go. Guantanamo's expeditionary legal complex. Okay. It was built solely to prosecute this case. It's... It's amazing to me. It really is. Because what they have done, the design of this courtroom is, is pretty cool in a sense, right? And and like I said, from the kind of nerdy legal standpoint that courts normally open, right? And, and this is a U.S. court that's actually being held in Cuba, but it's on a, it's on a U.S. military base. So therefore, it's American soil. So it's technically occurring in the U.S., right, for all intents and purposes. That's kind of how that works, okay? But the gallery, spectators who are allowed in the gallery, and I believe it's just uh, family members of victims, okay, and and probably some journalists, but they're able to watch the proceedings behind triple-pane glass that is actually behind the court. They can hear the court proceedings, right, so the, the audio is piped in, but there's a 40-second delay from this so that if the if anything comes out that is uh, top secret, it can be muted out before it gets to the gallery. Cannot take pictures, but you can do sketches. Okay, and that, that last part, that's pretty typical uh, in federal court is um, they don't allow cameras for the most part. That's why a lot of times... You see sketches of, of court proceedings. But this is not civilian court. This is not federal civilian court. This is actually a specially created court, but it's a military court. Okay? So keep that in mind. So we're not talking about the regular rules and things that we would talk about when we're looking at things from a civilian perspective, right? Everything I do is from a civilian perspective. If you're in the military and, and, you do something, pretty much anything, uh, you're generally subjected to the military's court system um, and, and not this, well, sometimes you can be both, but um, 
if you have a civilian case, a lot of times you then also have a ride-along um, military case, okay? So here's what's mind-blowing about all of this. This case has been going on since 2002, right? So the first people were caught in 2002. And so a year, about a year after, it was, it was right around September of 2002 that the first arrests were made. So if we look at the, the starting point of a court case being once somebody is arrested and charged, right? This has been going on for 20 years, all right? Uh, the charges... And they all carry the death penalty. So, or some of them at least carry the death penalty. Conspiracy, murder in violation of the law of war, and terrorism. Yeah, uh, all of all of those actually. Conspiracy, uh, no, but you, conspiracy always has a ride along charge. So you have um, the murder, murder in violation of law of war and terrorism. Yeah, terrorism and murder will will get you the death penalty. Uh, conspiracy, and, and I feel like I feel like we've talked about conspiracy a lot on this show. I think the last show that we did, we talked about conspiracy, and, and it, it really comes up when you have these really large-type incidents that happen, right? And by large, I mean lots of people involved, lots, lots of defendants involved, because what you want to do is you want to be able to charge everybody with everything, everybody that's involved, right? You don't want somebody to, to be able to get off and, and be found innocent, or, or not innocent, but be found not guilty, right? Because there's a difference. In, innocence does not equal not guilty. Um, or not guilty does not equal innocence, right? So, conspiracy, just is that way of going, that, that person can go, well, I didn't do it. I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't push the button, right? I didn't, fly, I didn't steer the plane. I didn't push the throttle. No. But you put the pieces in motion to do so. Right, and those pieces that you put in motion wasn't necessarily illegal, right? You talking to somebody isn't necessarily illegal. You telling somebody this is how you fly a plane, right? Not necessarily illegal, but when you start putting these pieces together in terms of this is where I want you to go, this, these are your instructions. You are to go on this plane, and you are to do this. You are to try to sneak razor blades on the planes in a test run to see how we could sneak razor blades on the planes. That's what they did, right? That is what was done. Razor blades, there was testing done to see how security could be bypassed. Just as a side note, those of you who use a safety razor, right? One of the ones that have an actual like double-sided blade, not like a Gillette that has multiple blades in it. Yeah, those aren't allowed on airplanes. Um, just in case you were wondering. Um, I've I may use a safety razor, and uh, I may have been asked by TSA why I had a safety razor. So I shaved my face, and they took it away from me. No problem. No problem at all. Um, so anyway, uh, just keep that in mind, right? It, you know, it's an honest mistake, right? For us, right? not us, but like now, like you're shaving, right? Whatever, you're, you know you're allowed to bring a razor, and uh, just keep that in mind. I would imagine the the razor blades that they're talking about are more of like your um, you go to Home Depot and you buy a utility blade, not like a. I, I think the safety razor would probably snap in half if you tried to do anything with it, which actually might make it more dangerous. But that's a whole nother story for a whole nother topic, and maybe someone with a whole lot more uh, science experience than I do. So anyway, 
we have this case that's, that's still, trial hasn't even been set. Now, yeah, there was a 17-month delay because of COVID, okay? But still, we're, we're at 20 years, and there's still no dates, no trial date that has been set. Here's, here's the biggest holdup in it, right? One of the defendants is being examined by a military board. Remember, this is military court, not civilian court, to determine whether that defendant is competent to stand trial, meaning that does he have the mental capacity to stand trial? Has nothing to do with whether or not he had the mental capacity at the time the crime was committed, right? So you can be... Um, you can be mentally incompetent at the time the crime was committed, right? It essentially is an excuse for the crime that was committed, okay? Or sometime after that crime was committed, you become mentally incompetent and you therefore then become mentally incompetent to stand trial, okay? Um, really a complicated piece of, of law. I don't deal in it because it's... it's I have zero interest in dealing in, in that because it's it's so nuanced and complicated that... Um, you just you got to be a specialist in it, right? That that's really the long and the short of how that works. Okay. A lot of the back and forth is on what's admissible at trial, right? So normally, when we're looking at the civilian side and we're looking at the federal side, they call it trial by ambush. And what that means is that, and it, it sounds really bad, and and in this context, it makes it sound even worse because we had all the the uh, the 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 interrogation issues and everything else, right? But trial by ambush is, is just basically this. When you do a civilian federal case, the prosecutor, they don't have to give you any discovery. They don't have to give you anything they're going to use against your client. In state court, they do, right? So you have an idea of what you're up against. You know what they're going to present at trial. They know what you're going to present at trial and go, right? In civilian federal court, it's just you show up and they tell you what they have at that point. So there, there's a lot of back and forth on that part of it. Now, what what's being looked at, too, is that I, there were some confessions that came about. However, they some of them were uh, under the guise of what uh, the CIA has called enhanced interrogation. In, uh, enhanced, what the CIA has called advanced interrogation techniques. Um, I think one of the, the most familiar ones that I think we've all heard about is waterboarding. Um, by the way, absolutely, unbelievably terrible, okay? I mean, like, you literally, you take a, lay somebody down, you put a towel over them, over their face and mouth, and you pour water, and it's like, it's like you're drowning. Um, it, it, I mean, drowning's got to be the worst way to go, and to be able to recreate the ability to feel like you're drowning, God, that's got to be absolutely terrible, okay? Um, and, and look, I, I am not taking a stand one way or the other on this, but I can tell you that people are generally more predisposed to admitting to things when they're being tortured to admit to them because if the, at least the theory goes that if I'm being, if you're, if someone's being tortured, they're most likely to just agree with their torturer to get the torturing to stop, right? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think there's much question of whether or not we have the right people. I, I, I believe that the, the, the government feels like they do, so I have no reason to think that they don't, right? But just do keep in mind, and, and look, we got to look at it from the legal perspective. And from the legal perspective, right, 
the defense is arguing that some of the information that the government received was faulty or tainted, right, because it was obtained through torture, right? So the prosecution is uh, calling the 2007 questioning uh, clean team interrogations. Um, But I don't think that makes it sound better, right? I don't feel like if I got up in court and go, yeah, you know what, these interrogations, they were clean team interrogations. I don't don't feel like that helps. I feel like that actually might make it worse that it has a name, okay? So um, just something to think about. There have been several judges that have presided over this over time uh, because, well, it's taken uh, so long, okay? Uh, There are five defendants. Also, maybe a little cool fact about the courtroom that they built actually can house six defendants. Okay, um, the first one sits closest to the judge. So, the person with the most charges, and this is this is kind of unique to to this. Um, and it's it's it'd be interesting to see what the setup actually looks like. But the person with the most serious and most charges and most serious charges is sitting first and closest. And then the one with the least is sitting the furthest from the judge. Okay. Um, so the first one was the planes operation. Basically set up all the ops for the planes. Um, he came up with the idea. Okay. So this is the real bad guy presented to Osama bin Laden. I don't know how they know this, but maybe he told them while they were waterboarding him. I don't know. Um, I don't know how he got a word in, a word in with all the water coming in. But anyway, um, uh, so he seemingly has he seemingly proposed this terrorist attack terrorist attack idea to Osama bin Laden in 1996, all right, um, and he is the only defendant with children. Who knew? He has eight of them. In case you were, wanted to know what his family life was like, he has eight kids. All right. The uh, next was the trainer for them. So he trained hand to hand fighting. The this is where I was getting at before he he facilitated the um, the testing of running razor blades through security. Uh, all, all of these attackers are from the Middle East. All all of their origins are from the Middle East. Um, so some of them from Afghanistan, some of them from from Saudi Arabia. Uh, the next one researched all the flight schools and. Wired money. Uh, this one actually, he was he lived in Germany at the time, so he actually coordinated all of this from Germany. Coordinated all the, the figuring out the flight times and where to go. Uh, he was a go-between for some of the cells. He was kind of liaison for some of the terror cells that existed. Uh, he did this one. Uh, did try to get a visa, but was unable to. So, um, but you know, apparently more people were able to get visas to carry out the attacks. All right, and let's see. We have the money man. The money man is up next. Uh, he was in Dubai, I guess. Dubai and money go hand in hand, so that that makes sense. That, that kind of tracks. Uh, this one, though, was the detainee Amar, who was brutalized in, and I'm I'm quoting this from uh, something that I found. Okay, so he was brutalized in the Hollywood film Zero Dark Thirty, which this. Uh, Anmar al Baluchi, at least that's how Baluchi was how you say it in Italian. I don't know how you say it in Hebrew um, or um, whichever language this is uh, Arabic. I would actually assume not Hebrew. Sorry, wrong, wrong language in Arabic. 
Um, but anyway, that that character Anmar is based off of the Money Man, and uh, he was born in Kuwait. So then we have the last one. He aided in in the hijackers, and he has the fewest charges. But every single one of them are up for the death penalty, which I mean, death penalty cases to take a long long time is not necessarily all that crazy. So here's where it gets really interesting. These legal teams, right? So these legal teams are like they didn't just call up. So these these five guys didn't just call up their um, you know their Middle Eastern attorneys. They several different countries. Okay, so no, I don't mean that in a derogative way, but they didn't just call up their hometown attorneys and go, "Hey, yeah, I need you to represent me in this case." Nope, can't do that, right? Because it's not a civilian case. Okay, and well, they wouldn't have licenses to practice law in federal court in the U.S. They'd have to jump through some hoops to do that. But anyway, be that as it may, it's a military court, not a civilian court. So. Everybody involved is military. The judge is military. The jury is military. All of the defense teams are overseen by military lawyers. The entire prosecution is our military lawyers. Okay? Here's what's really interesting. Every single person involved in the case has top secret clearance. Both the prosecution and the defense teams. Okay? And they also, not in addition to having the top secret clearance, it's... They also have to have the clearance to be able to access intelligence information. And that stems from the fact that CIA black sites were used. And I guess, you know, when you use CIA black sites and, you know, you you interrogate some terrorists and you do some things, well, you know, you got to have top secret clearance. You got to have like a step up from top, top secret clearance. So that's what the legal teams are made up of. Now, the defense legal teams, my God, you look at the... The, the cases that the, we'll call them the private defense attorneys have done. Now, so here's how it works, right? You have the defense teams are led by military attorneys, right? Um, and, but they're, they're not the ones that are really doing all the day-to-day work. It's actually private attorneys from the U.S. doing the day-to-day work, essentially on behalf of the military, They've been given top secret clearance, okay. Which this isn't necessarily from a legal world. Yeah, it's a little bit, little bit different, a little bit nuanced. But it's not that terribly uncommon for a civilian to have top secret clearance. All right. So if you think of um, the the Department of Defense subcontractors, there's a lot of times that they have people who work there that have top secret clearance. Okay. There's also secret clearance. There's other clearances, right? Top secret's one of the higher ones. So keep that in mind that that a civilian having top secret clearance is not necessarily out of the ordinary. Now, if you're a civilian with top secret clearance, man, you, you can pretty much get any defense job you want in the civilian sector because there's not that many people with it and the cost to get it is extremely high, okay? So if we just look at who these... The private defense attorneys have represented in the past. We have the one who represented the Unabomber. All right. Um, we have another one who had represented the uh, Beltway sniper. This was, there was a, a sniper up in Virginia, Virginia and D.C. area. There's all these, there's probably right around similar time, right? Probably about 20 years or so ago. 
um, there was a sniper there, and that one of uh, one of these defense attorneys was the defense attorney for that sniper. And then there's other private attorneys involved who have done death penalty cases before in federal and state courts. So really kind of high-level type thing that it's look it's not that I would ever want to do right those attorneys who do that who do death penalty cases that's that's pretty rough work um, but that's that's what a lot of these attorneys that's kind of their makeup all right so that's who's defending these uh, terrorists or alleged terrorists I don't want any defamation defamation cases coming across my desk uh, naming me as a defendant for calling them terrorists or allegedly terrorists allegedly uh, remember that allegedly. Okay, uh, the jury is actually is going to be made up of twelve military officers. Okay, so not enlisted men, but officers. Whether that's a difference in in how a jury really plays out, I don't think so. But it it has to be an officer. It can't be an enlisted officers. Generally, have uh, college degrees. Whether that means anything or not, not for me to decide. But that's that's what that's saying. And they're they're planning on having about a hundred and. 50 in a jury pool and what they'll do is the plan is to fly them from either florida or dc florida's by the way the closest state to cuba right which makes it the closest state to guantanamo bay fly them over boom it's like a well it's 90 miles away so it's like an hour flight i think from miami something like that right actually it's 90 miles from key west which is part of the u.s right but key west is i don't know about a four hour is key west about a four hour drive from miami i think it's close Three or four hour drive from the southern tip of Key West up to Miami. So uh, you got an hour, hour and a half plane ride from Miami down to Cuba. So the plan is to have a jury pool because the base there only holds like 6,000 people, right? So you can't have all the jurors there at one time. So you shuttle the jury pool back and forth. Uh, The jury will be sequestered, meaning that they'll be separated from everybody else. Uh, So they'll have private housing they won't be able they generally speaking can't watch tv um now you know things may have changed as we've gone into more streaming type tv um because generally you just you can't have access to the news so no newspapers no contact with the outside world like this is it's kind of intense right especially when you think it happens in civilian court also right as a member of the military i guess you might be a little bit more used to some of the solitude Right, and being cut off from fa- friends and family. And that's essentially what sequestration does right? as part of it. It's a byproduct of it. But anyway, so it would be really interesting to see if this trial ever happens. Uh, hopefully it does soon and I can do an update on the trial and we can talk through the different legal aspects of it. But that's the 9-11 update on 9-11. So those of you listening to the podcast later on, um, just know that this actually was recorded on 9-11-2023, and that's the update for where where we are in terms of some facts and the legal side on the 9-11 terrorist attacks. As always, please make sure you check me out on social media. Rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It helps us out a lot. And on that note, Lawfather out.